Well, I hope as you heard that description of the New Jerusalem, you had a bit of a picture forming in your mind, uh, but maybe hard to work out exactly uh, what it was that John saw. If you Google the New Jerusalem in Google Images, you'll find all kinds of uh, artists' impressions of what what it was that John saw. Uh, but uh, this is a, a glorious vision of God's people uh, and I trust that as we look at it uh, we'll have a sense of God's glory among us. As we've often done in Revelation, we actually need to start by looking back to the Old Testament to help us understand this vision of the New Jerusalem. Uh, Last week, if you remember, we saw that a lot of the imagery of the new heavens and new earth came out of the book of Isaiah. Well, this week and next week, a lot of the imagery comes out of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 40 to 48, the final chapters in the book, give a detailed uh, utopian vision depicting what things should be like when the exiled Jews returned from Babylon to the land. But we've got nowhere near enough time to look at it in detail, uh, but here it is in summary. In chapter 40, Ezekiel sees a, the design of the temple filled with the glory of God. Then he sees a description of the altar and the priests ministering in that temple. Then he zooms out a bit and he sees the holy district in the land, the the part of the land reserved for the temple, for the Levites and for the city. He sees that either side of the holy district is the prince's portion of the land where the prince maintains justice and worship. Chapter 46, uh, he hears about all the feasts and the sacrifices that have been restored as the Jews come back. Then in chapter 47, he sees this river flowing from the temple and making the Dead Sea fresh and full of life. Then he sees the, the apportioning of the land and he sees that all of the tribes have an equal portion in the land with the holy district right in the centre. And then finally he sees the city and the city is called the Lord is there. The city has 12 gates for each of the tribes. Now you may be familiar with the maps of the Holy Land showing the territories and of the tribes as, as was assigned by Joshua as Israel first entered the land. That's the uh, common picture we see and just incidentally on the bottom left hand corner you can see Gaza, that little strip along there that was never, uh, Israel never managed to get that land from the Philistines and that's why modern day Palestinians are claiming They are the Philistines who still lay claim to that part of the land. That's what it was like when the time of Joshua, but Ezekiel's vision is 
quite different. If we set out Ezekiel's vision in a visual way, it looks something like this. This is a picture of a unified Israel where every tribe has an equal portion of the land which implies an equal number of people in each tribe. So that straight away should remind us of the 144,000 whom we saw in Revelation 7 and 14, symbolic of God's old covenant people, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, an equal division of the land. Now it looks a little bit asymmetrical there because there are seven tribes in the north and five tribes in the south. But this arrangement is all related to the different mothers of the sons who became the tribes and it treats the sons of Rachel and the sons of Leah equally in terms of their proximity to the holy section, the holy district. Now we could spend a lot of time looking at all the different relationships in this layout but we don't have time and some people might fall asleep if we do. But suffice it to say, as I said, it is this utopian picture of spiritual harmony. And it's, it's a layout that, would, that actually would require a significant change of the terrain to actually make it happen. For the river to flow from the city to the Dead Sea, the mountain range would have to be removed, or at least a valley would have to be made there. It's a picture of an absolute holy God living among a people who are completely sanctified with his holiness radiating out through his priestly people to the whole world. The two key structures in this vision here are the temple and the city, the administrative and the spiritual centre of the renewed, repopulated land. Now in Ezekiel's vision, they're two separate structures. They're separated by 10,000 cubits, about four and a half kilometres. But in John's vision in Revelation 21, what we see is the attributes of the city and the attributes of the temple are combined because the new Jerusalem is a holy city. It's a city which is a temple. It's a temple which is a city. The new Jerusalem isn't literal bricks and mortar structure, but it's symbolic of the bride, the church. We saw that symbolism in verse 2, in which the city is descending from heaven, but it's also dressed as a bride. Can you picture a city wearing a wedding dress? Probably not, because that's the nature of these visions in which one thing is described in two ways, like Jesus, who's both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. So while we think of cities as geographical locations in which people live, the Bible speaks of cities as the people themselves among whom God lives. Remember how we've already seen those two women in Revelation, 
And there's a, a chart there in your uh, newsletter. These two women who turned out to be actually the same woman in two different states. There was the woman clothed in the sun who represented the people of Israel, Jerusalem, who gave birth to the Messiah. And there was the prostitute riding the scarlet beast who represented Jerusalem who had fallen into idolatry by rejecting her own Messiah and who was finally destroyed. Now we see a third woman who isn't really a third woman at all but is the resurrected Jerusalem. Now that all the idolatry and defilement has been put away by God's judgment, she's raised perfect and glorious, ready to be united to her husband. But the resurrected Jerusalem is in a different form to the old one. No longer is Jerusalem defined by national ethnic Israel according to the flesh. Instead, she's composed of people from both the Old and New Testament times, from people from every tribe and tongue and nation, those who have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those who are true Israel, not according to the flesh, but according to faith in Jesus. And we'll see this as we look at John's description of what he sees. But first, we need to take note of the the one who invites him to go and see. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. We've met a few angels in our journey through Revelation, but we might ask, why this angel? Out of all of them, why this angel to show John the bride? And John makes it very clear by a threefold use of seven. This angel represents the seven angels who poured out those devastating judgments of God upon the earth. This was the angel who said back in 17, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. But do you remember what was said about these seven angels and their plagues? There were seven angels with seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The seven plagues depicted the final judgment, the completion of God's wrath. So, to use modern terminology, now that the heavens have been renewed, now that the new Jerusalem has come, this angel's role as an administrator of God's wrath has become redundant. It's time for him to be transferred to a new career to be the tour guide of the New Jerusalem. So it's fitting that an angel who originally poured out God's judgement is now showing us the glories of the bride because it's through God's action of judgement that he's brought salvation. 
We know the stories in the scriptures, repeated illustrations that point to this truth, the judgment of the flood, out of which came a new beginning and God's covenants with all of his living creatures. The judgment on Babel, out of which came the nations, and then the covenant with Abraham. There was a time of slavery in Egypt, out of which came the nation of Israel and God's covenant with them at Sinai. All of his judgments upon Israel throughout their history, which prepared them to be that woman who gave birth to the Messiah. All of these were pointing forward to the ultimate act of salvation through judgment at the cross of Christ, where all of God's wrath was poured out on him so that through him sinners like us may be saved. So this angel, having this angel as our tour guide of the New Jerusalem reminds us it's only through judgments, the judgment of the cross, that we can actually come in and stand within its walls. So let's look and see what John sees. First, as we noted last week, and John repeats it, as if to drive the point home, the city is coming down out of heaven from God, in verse 10. I just mentioned Babel. Remember what the builders of the city of Babel said. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. What they built was so tiny that comically the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. In our arrogance, we think we can build something of lasting and impressive significance, but it comes to nothing. But here is a city, oh, there's the Genesis reading, here is a city, not built by human hands, but by God. It's not humanity vainly trying to reach up to heaven from earth, but it is God reaching down from the heavens to make his dwelling among us, the new humanity. Instead of God coming down to see the little thing that's been built by us, John is taken up to a great high mountain so that he can see what God has built. And as we'll see shortly, the city is so massive that John needs to be on such a high vantage point to be able to take it all in. Secondly, see that this city has the glory of God in verse 11. It means it's filled with, it's displaying God's very nature. When John first saw the Father on the throne in chapter 4, he said, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, the glory of God display. This is the first hint about the nature of the city as being more than just a city. Because the only structure in the Bible normally spoken of having God's glory is the temple. Something we'll see in a moment. But there's something else in creation 
that bears the glory of God. Human beings made in his image. And most supremely, the human being, Jesus, the image of the invisible God who shows us clearly and fully the glory of the Father to us. It's in him that we with our tarnished and defiled image are restored to our true humanity. Not a glory that comes from us, but a glory that comes from him as he is dwelling in us. Thirdly, this city has 12 gates, three on each side. Each gate represents a tribe of Israel. And this comes directly from Ezekiel's vision of the city in which the 12 gates were named after the tribes. And there are 12 foundations named after the 12 apostles in verse 14. 12 speaks of the fullness of God's people. And here we see that all of God's people from Old Testament and New Testament are together. Like the 24 elders around the throne, sitting on their thrones. There's two things to note about this. First, we might expect that the names of the tribes should be on the foundations and the apostles on the gates since the Twelve tribes came first and the apostles later and the apostles built on the foundation of what came before. But this is, I believe, communicating to us that what the apostles preached, Jesus Christ, is and always has been the foundation, the truth that's been there from the very beginning, that in which the tribes of Israel were to look as their foundation. Christ is the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation on which everything else must be built if it's to stand firm. And that foundation has been laid right from the very beginning, from eternity, when the Father chose and set apart the Son to enter this creation and to die for sinners. It's been hidden from sight in the past, apart from a few glimpses every now and then until it was fully unveiled in the New Testament time. So that's why the 12 tribes of Israel and all of that background of the Old Testament are like the gates. We walk through them into the city in order to stand on the firm foundation of the Gospel. The other thing to note about these gates is the angels at the gates. And we're reminded here of the cherubim who stood at the gate of the Garden of Eden. But there's a difference. It's angels, not cherubim. Cherubim are guards. They're put in place to keep people out of the holy place. Angels are different creatures. Angels come from the presence of God in order to draw people in to the presence of God by speaking his word. When people encounter angels, they're often unclear about whether they've seen an angel or if they've actually seen God himself. So these angels, they're not at the gates to keep people out, they're there to welcome people in. The cherubim, they're no longer needed in this new Garden of Eden 
their jobs too have become redundant. Fourthly, we see the measurements of the city, verses 15 to 17, which tells us more about its identity as a holy place. It's a perfect cube which resembles the holy of holies in the temple. 12,000 stadia should make us think again of the great multitude of 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, which adds up to 144,000, which is confirmed in that the walls are 144 cubits thick. But these measurements tell us not just about the perfect cube shape of the holy city, but also its size. A stadium is around 185 metres. So 12,000 stadia is about 2,200 kilometres. And a cubit is the length of a forearm, an adult's forearm, about 18 inches or half a metre. So 144 cubits is literally 72 metres. So this is a massive structure that John sees. If it was literally built, it would look like this in proportion to the planet. It would probably knock us out of orbit. The original Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was 10 cubits square, 5 metres, with walls 1 cubit thick. So roughly the size of a lounge room. This is a holy of holies that is so huge that in the minds of the original readers it has enveloped the whole world. And that's the significance of its size. In the new heavens and the new earth, the glorious holiness of God fills his redeemed people and through them fills the whole earth. Fifthly, see how the city is decorated, verses 18 to 21. If you're engaged or married, you might have on yourself a ring with a precious stone, maybe a bit more jewellery on your wedding day, but this bride is adorned with gold and pearls and every precious stone imaginable. But this adornment of the bride also tells us something about the holiness of the city. We've already seen the cube shape makes us think of the holy of holies. This city is pure gold, so it looks like polished glass and even the street is gold. In the temple, everything in the holy of holies was made of pure gold, the most precious of metals. So this city, even the ground under your feet, is pure gold, signifying the holiness of God. These 12 precious stones that are the foundations of the city, they're not just there for looks. The high priest wore a breastplate in which were embedded 12 precious stones, each representing a tribe, so that whenever he went into the temple, into the presence of God, he symbolically bore the whole nation on himself as their representative. So not only is this city 
absolute in its holiness. It's dressed not just as a bride but as a priest because the children of the New Jerusalem are a royal priesthood. There's a little known and often misunderstood passage in Ezekiel, back to Ezekiel, that many think is speaking of Satan but is actually a description of Adam. Son of man, rise at raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. So this is a prophecy against the king of Tyre, but he then describes this king who was glorious uh, as if he was like Adam. Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed garden, guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. See how he's described here in this priestly language, adorned with the precious stones, placed on the holy mountain, charged with the role of a cherub to guard the holy place until his fall into unrighteousness. The first Adam failed in his priestly mandate to be the mediator of God's glory to all of his fellow creatures and his fellow human beings, bringing instead sin and death and condemnation. But the last Adam didn't fail. He was the great high priest. He shed his blood to atone for our sin. He entered the most holy place to intercede for us before the Father And he bears us like those twelve precious stones on himself, bringing us in him before the mercy seat so that we know that we we don't just stand in the Father's presence in him, but now that we're restored, we're restored to our true vocation, our human vocation as priests. If you view your Christian faith, is something that's purely for yourself. The only reason you're a believer is because of the good things you receive or to make you happy or successful in life or to just make sure you go to heaven when you die, then you're missing the point entirely. Christ has redeemed you not only that you may be a child of the Father but that you may be free to step up into the vocation that he gives you as a priestly servant. To be a child of God is to be the servant of all. We're filled with all the fullness of God in Christ in order that we might be channels of that fullness to those around us. As someone once put it, we climb the mountain into God's presence in order to be filled from the spring of living water with the lavish grace of God and then we go down the mountain so that we may share and communicate that grace 
to others. Whenever we're thirsty, we must come. We must gather, we must hear his word and drink our fill because we honour the spring by coming with our thirst and being refreshed in its never-ending flow. But we dishonour the spring if we keep the water to ourselves and don't freely share what we have received. We see this uh, priestly temple language continue in the sixth point of the city, verses 22 to 23. The city doesn't contain a temple building because that which the temple building foreshadowed has now become a reality. God is dwelling with his people. The temple building communicated in a visual display two key things to the Israelites. Firstly, that their God was with them because he chose them by grace. He was among them. But secondly, that God was veiled from them because of their sin. The temple was the closest thing in non-human creation that could come close to representing God. But now God has come to dwell not in a tent or a brick and stone building but in the flesh of Jesus Christ. So the building is now obsolete and with it the veil. So the city needs no created lights because the full glory of God is unveiled in Jesus the Lamb. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But it's also why he said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way that your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this comes out then in the seventh aspect of this city. Because the new Jerusalem is filled with the glory, the light of God in Jesus shining on all who live there The city then becomes a light to the nations. It's the true city on a hill. See how this isn't an abolition of the nations and their glory, nor is it an end to kings and their authorities and human authority. We won't become one homogenous mass of clones who are all the same. The nations are God's idea. The nations were always in God's plan. Thinking back to Babel, what was it that the builders of Babel aspired to? All speaking one language, all in one place, so they could make a name for themselves and not be scattered across the earth. So when God confused their language and scattered them, he was simply accomplishing what should have happened if they'd obeyed his command to fill the earth. 
The New Jerusalem isn't the new Babel. In it, the beautiful and glorious diversity of human beings made in God's image remains. There are still those charged with authority to administer Christ's authority by ruling. There's nations, there's kings. And in this vision, the nations are out there in the rest of the world, but the new Jerusalem is the centre, it's the capital where the kings all come, not to be stripped of their authority, but to willingly lay down their crowns in joyful submission so that they might be equipped to rule others in righteousness and love. So for that reason, the city gates will never be shut, verse 25. City's gates serve two purposes. One was obviously to provide a way for people to come in and out of the city when they were open and the other was to make sure that all of the undesirables were kept out and the inhabitants were safe when they were shut. Well, that second purpose is now obsolete because all of God's enemies have been defeated. His people will never need to fear that what happened in Eden will happen again. There's no more crafty serpents slithering in to deceive because the dragon's been thrown into the lake of fire. So this city is a place of welcome, of refuge, of security and its gates are open to allow this constant outward flow of God's life and glory to the nations and the constant inward flow of the peoples of all nations coming to honour and worship the Lamb seated on the throne, seated on the throne. Now remember this, this is a symbolic picture of a city. It's designed to illustrate the literal truth of who we are as God's people, the church, the communion of saints. This vision, and we've only seen the first part of it today, isn't given just so that we can have a sense of what to look forward to, although it certainly tells us that, but it also reminds us of who we are now because we have already been raised up with Christ and seated to reign with him at the right hand of the Father. So this vision informs us not just of who we will be but who we should seek to be now as the church in today's world. I've touched on that a bit already and next week we'll see it a bit more in detail but in closing, here's a summary of what the New Jerusalem tells us about who we are as the saints in Christ. Firstly, we are the new humanity designed and built by God to be his dwelling place. Secondly, because God dwells among us in Christ, we are the bearers of his glory. Thirdly, we are the fullness of God's people. Everyone who should be here is included. No one is missing. Fourthly, we are a holy people in whom the absolute holiness of God is displayed. Fifthly, we are a priestly people We've been restored to our high human vocation to be mediators of God's holiness and glory to creation. 
Sixthly, we have full and direct access to the presence of God. Now that the temple veil has been removed and Jesus is our light. And seventh, we are a light for the nations. We are a city on a hill through whom God will call and draw the nations to his light. What a magnificent portrait of the church. It's no wonder that 1 Timothy 3.15 calls us the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's time that we stop looking at the church through human eyes and treating it like just another human institution. So often I, as I speak to people across the Christian spectrum, I hear generally only negativity and criticism about the church. Not, I'm not just talking about the failures and the abuses that have happened in church institutions, but about the church itself. And that flows out of our culture's individualism and our culture's negativity towards so-called organised religion. We shouldn't buy into that narrative, that narrative that says the church is irrelevant or unnecessary or bad. We should see how Jesus speaks of his people, of us, the church. See how he values and loves us, how he lays down his life to redeem us, not just as individuals but as a whole, as the church together. See how his plan is to be united with us in eternal marriage as our husband. See the wonderful destiny he has for us in the new creation. The church is the one human institution that will continue from this age to the next. The church is the new humanity. The church is the new Jerusalem. We were reminded as we began the service from Psalm 42 when the psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? The first thing he remembers, he says, These things I remember. This is his answer to why, where his God is and why he shouldn't feel downcast in his soul. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist, the first thing he remembered when he was discouraged, when he was wondering where God was, when he was being taunted by his enemies, was, I am a member of God's people. I have the wonderful privilege to come and to gather and to lift up my songs of praise with the congregation of God's people. Let's see the church through his eyes. Let's see the church through Jesus' eyes.